I'm going to read to you before we start reading in Luke 16:19. I'm going to read you a few verses out of Luke 13. Then said one of, unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Now we come to Luke chapter 16, which is in some way a fulfillment and an illustration of these verses we just read in Luke 13. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them lest they come also into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The other evening we spoke of together in time and apart for eternity. We talked about the Pharisee and the publican, how they went into the temple. Two men went into the temple to pray. And one of them came home a changed man, and the other one went home just like he entered the temple. We have it again before us tonight. Two men who were together in time. Together in time, but apart for all eternity. They knew one another. They saw one another. They were near one another. But when eternity came, they were separated forever. And every time I read stories like this in the scripture, I think about people for instance, in this room tonight, who may be repeating the same story. People who need to learn from history. For as that famous saying goes, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And so here we have it before us. We want to think tonight about the reality of death. Death is the ultimate statistic. So many people die of heart uh, failure, heart disease. So many people die of cancer. Uh, so many people die of AIDS, so many people die, and we break it all up into statistics. And if the number is low enough, we feel, 
well, I, I suppose I have a chance with good medicine and proper diet and exercise and a little luck. You say, I probably have a chance. That's the wrong statistic. The ultimate statistic is one out of every one dies. That's the statistic. 100%. It doesn't matter if a piano falls on their head or if they die at, at 99 or 103 of simply old age and they just give up. It doesn't matter. The ultimate statistic is death. And someone said one time, the definition of a fool. A fool is a person whose plans all end at the grave. They make plenty of plans for this life. They have all their investment portfolio and their retirement plan and everything is so well planned but when the, it comes time to look the grave in the face they have nothing beyond that no plan made at all and we're looking tonight at the story of a man who had no plans beyond the grave death is a reality people are interested in death and what's beyond it there are a lot of opinions about that you know but just suppose for a minute that someone could uh, move the curtain aside and let us look into that world beyond the tomb and see what is really there and what really happens. And we don't have to suppose because in this that is before us, this text that we have tonight before our eyes, that is exactly what Jesus Christ does. This text is not someone's story. These are the words of Christ. It says in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who's speaking here. Jesus is. This is not a parable. He doesn't say, and when they begin a parable, you know, they say, uh, he spoke unto them a parable. We had that the other evening. We had the Pharisee and the publican. He says it was a parable to illustrate to them the problem of people who think that they're better than other people and they trust in themselves. That was the purpose of it. But he doesn't say that here. This is not called a parable. Parables, uh, in parables, people don't have names. People in places, they're fictitious. They're just for the purpose of illustrating a point. And here we have Abraham and Lazarus. People are named. Abraham is not a parable. He's a literal historical person. Hades or hell, it's actually Hades. And paradise are real places. They're not imaginary. They're not philosophical concepts. They're places. And as we speak tonight, there are people who are in a place of eternal remorse and there are other people who are in a place of eternal happiness. They're there. And they're never going to leave that place. Good for those who chose to trust in God and have eternal life. And have gone to that place here called Abraham's bosom, called paradise. That place where Abraham, the faithful, the believer, and all believers have gone. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God. It didn't say he believed in God. Of course he believed in God. But the difference between a believer, a born again, a forgiven person who will spend eternity in heaven and a person who will not is that the, the believer, the born again person, believes God. While many other people and even the demons, James 2.19 says, believe in God. James 2.19 says, you say you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. The demons know God is there. They believe. They have faith in that. You could say they believe it intellectually. And emotionally, they tremble. They have an emotional reaction about it. But they never commit their will. Their will is in a constant state of rebellion against God. A demon, a fallen angel, and Satan are the embodiment of selfishness. That's what they are. And I don't know if you realize how big a sin selfishness is. But there it is. Believe God 
or just believe in God. Well, we know that even in hell people believe in God. There are no atheists in hell. We said that the other night. But do you believe what God says? Do you trust God, you see? That's the question. And we have two men here tonight before us. One of them did and one of them didn't. The story of the the rich man, uh, and really the focus of what the Lord has to say here is about him. The story of the rich man is the story of the unjust steward. There was a man earlier on, the Lord spoke of him in this way, in this very chapter. A man who squandered all of the, the goods, all of the belongings of the person who he was serving. He was the administrator, let's say, of an estate. And he took it all and did whatever he wanted with it. And he was put out. Well, here we have an illustration of that. A certain rich man who simply took everything he had, everything that God gave him, and instead of administering it for good, he used it for himself. That's what he did. He gained the world and he lost his soul. He is the perfect illustration of a person who lives for self and pleasure, who enjoys life to its fullest, but takes no care for the future. And that is the way Western civilization, and in particular America, lives. Enjoyment, pleasure, fun, thrills, happiness, comfort. And what about the future? Let's look at the condition of the rich man. The condition of the rich man is divided. We're going to divide it into two parts. Verses 19 to 21, his condition before death. And then from 22 to the end, to verse 31, his condition after death. What do we know about the rich man and his condition before death? Well, it says here, there was a certain rich man. It tells us how he dressed, clothed in purple and fine linen. He wore the best, nothing but the best for him. You know, there are people like that. A lot of people like that. They have to buy all their clothes in a certain store. And it has to have a certain brand. It has to have a certain tag in the back. Or, or a little alligator here it used to be when, when people would pay whatever it cost, you know, to have that. And the shoes and everything, even the watch band, everything. You couldn't just wear anything ordinary. You see, clothes make a statement. And they drill this into us, don't they? Clothes make a statement. So he wore purple. And he wore fine linen. One old brother said if people took as much care of their heart, of their spirit, as they do of their outward appearance. And he was speaking to a group of young women. He said, if you spend as much time on your spirit as you spend on your face and your hair, he said, just think what kind of a person you would be. And then he turned to the men and he said, and I know about your vanity standing in front of the mirror and how you comb your hair and how you turn from side to side and how you fuss and fuss over which piece of jewelry you're going to wear and this shirt and if it goes with this and worried if you're wearing the right perfume and the right cologne and all of these things. He said, if we spend that much time worrying about our spiritual condition, just think what kind of people we would be. We take care of what people look at, but not of what God looks at. So this is the way he dressed. Certain rich man, he had it and he spent it clothed in purple and fine linen. And he says he ate well, fared sumptuously every day. His concern was to enjoy life. Eat the best. Why not? And so that's what he did every day. You could say with him, every day was Christmas dinner. Every day was a banquet. He never had an ordinary meal. He never ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) He probably ate hummus, though, didn't he? You'll have to ask Adeline and Sylvia later about hummus, what that is, if you don't know. A few of you know already, I think. (laughs) This is the way he lived. And he had a wonderful opportunity at his hand to help someone who didn't have And he didn't take it. It says, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. And why do they mention Lazarus? Well, it says he was laid at his gate. He was placed at the gate of the rich man, at the entrance to the rich man's property, so that it was impossible for him to come in or go out without seeing that man, Lazarus, there. There he was. He was a needy man, full of sores, had no money, had no health, 
And he didn't have many friends, apparently, except the dogs. The dogs came and licked his sores. Apparently, he couldn't move to get away from them. He was in poor health, and that was about the only medical attention he got, was the dogs licking his sores. What did he desire? Verse 21 says he desired to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. A crumb from that man's table would have satisfied him. Oh, how things change, because a little later on in eternity, the rich man desires that a moistened finger of this beggar might pass across his tongue once in eternity and quench his thirst. How different their desires. The Lord took care of Lazarus in eternity, but there wasn't anyone to take care of the rich man in eternity. Now, the problem with this story is that many people, and particularly those of communist and socialist persuasion, have used this story to try to typify the class struggle, the bourgeois and the proletariat. And they try to get the working class against the ruling class in here. And they say that the rich man, he went to hell. In the end, he was condemned because he was rich. And the poor man went to heaven because he was poor. And they say, that's how God's going to work it all out in the end. The poor people that suffer in this world and in this life, they're all going to go to heaven and the Lord's going to take care of them and all the rich people are going to go to hell. And I guess they feel consoled thinking that. But they miss the point. That's not what this story is about. The story is not about how much money they had. The story is not about their social position. The story is about the condition of the heart. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, I'll tell you how I know that. Because I don't start reading the Bible at Luke 16, verse 19. By the time I get to Luke 16, I've read Luke 1, Luke 2, Luke 3, Luke 4. By the time I get here, I know what Jesus preaches and teaches. I know what the gospel message is. And I read the rest of the Bible. And I know how people are saved, how they are forgiven and taken to heaven. By grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Only by having a substitute who can stand in their place, answer for their sins, and set them free. I know how Abraham got to heaven. The Old Testament tells me that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so I know, and you know, that if Lazarus got to heaven, it was because he believed God. It was because he believed God. It was because he had faith. See, what does it mean to believe God? Well, we talked about that a minute ago. It doesn't mean the same thing as to believe in God. There was a translator. I was telling someone this a story the other night. There was a translator working with a tribe somewhere that, uh, who only had a spoken language, not a written language. And uh, he was trying to translate the New Testament. And he came to the word faith. And so he asked this man, this indigenous man, he said, Now, in your language, what is the word for faith? And the man thought about it for a minute. He said, We don't have a word for that. So the translator thought for a little bit and he said, okay, he got a chair and he sat down in front of the man and he said, now, what am I doing with this chair? And the man said, he said some word about it. He was trusting it. I don't know exactly how he would have said it, but he said, you're committing yourself to this chair. And he said, put that word down. That's it. Because that's what faith means. Faith is not looking at the chair and saying, I believe in that chair. That chair has four legs. That chair is a nice upholstery. That's a sturdy chair. Looks like it would support my weight. Goes well with the decor. Let's all get out a pencil and paper and, and do a sketch. Let's have a little contest and draw a picture of the chair and see who can draw the best picture. Would anyone like to guess the weight of the chair? We'll, we'll play a little game. Who can guess how much it would weigh? It's not the faith in the chair is not knowing things about the chair. It's not believing that the chair exists. It's not appreciating the chair. It's not admiring the chair. It's not defending the chair from the weather. Faith is trusting the chair. Committing yourself to it. If it collapses, I'm gone. He said, write that down. Abraham 
you can say he put his weight on God. He trusted God. He committed himself to God. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So if Lazarus goes to heaven, it's because he trusted, not because he knew things about God, but because he trusted. And if the rich man doesn't go there, it's because he didn't trust. We get uh, distracted by the riches and the poverty sometimes in this situation. They're really decoys. They're not the main problem. Here's a man who had at his side someone, the rich man had at his side at his gate daily, someone that he could have helped if he had a heart of love. If he had believed in and trusted the God of heaven, it would have shown in his life in the way he treated people around him. But it didn't. And this so often, forget about the rich man and Lazarus for a minute, this so often happens in modern evangelicalism. And I didn't make that word up. A.W. Tozer did, I believe. Where people say they believe all the right things. They have all the right vocabulary, but the way they treat one another. What did James say? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. He said, will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? True faith, true trust in God converts the person and changes the person. He is changed not by his faith, but by God into a new person. He's given that new nature. He has a new life. And he doesn't behave like he did before. And you see the difference in his life. Faith with works is alive. Faith without works is dead. And I've had people tell me, no, but I, I was saved when I was, I trusted God when I was, uh, let's say, some little age. I don't know, I won't think of any specific cases. We'll say eight, uh, eight years old. I trusted God when I was eight. And then uh, when I was a teenager, well, then I got away from God and I, my heart grew cold and, and I lived in the world and the things like that. And then when I was 25 one day, and I listened to somebody preaching the gospel and I said, I need to come back to God. But you were a Christian all those years. Oh, yes, yes. I've been a Christian since I was eight. I wrote a letter to my father. Now I am thinking of a case. I wrote a letter to my father when, when I was 12 years old. And I'll just bring you that letter and you just read it and tell me that a person who isn't a Christian could write a letter like that. I said, okay, go ahead, bring me the letter. My Bible says, if any man say, I know him and does not keep his word or his commandments, he is a, who said that? No, 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 no. He is a carnal Christian. He made Jesus his Savior, but not his Lord. Uh, He's a baby Christian. He's a new Christian. He's a weak Christian. He's a worldly Christian. What does the Bible say? And don't go off and say, Carl said this because I did. This is what the Bible says. If any man say, I know him, and keep not his word, he is a liar. A liar. And the truth is not in him. I wouldn't give you two cents for the profession of faith of a person whose life, whose character, whose behavior on a regular daily basis denies what the Bible says is a real Christian. And that's the way it is. John, John Wayne used to say, that's the truth and you can bank on it in Dallas. <laughs> and this is the problem with the rich man. The Jews considered riches to be a sign of blessing. Blessing. I will bless you. I will multiply your flocks. We're not, we don't have time to go into the Psalms and the Old Testament and see how they were promised uh, earthly blessings and wealth and health and prosperity as a result of their trusting God and God's favor to them. And so a rich man, was a rich Hebrew, 
was automatically thought of as a person whom God was blessing. And a person who didn't have anything was automatically thought of as a person whom God was punishing. So this that Jesus is telling here is probably, we could, I think we would be safe in saying, one of the most revolutionary things that he could say to the Jewish nation. So we have the rich man and how he lived. We have the poor man and how he lived. But then we come to the great separator of all men and women. Verse 22. It came to pass that the beggar died. And the end of the verse says, the rich man also died and was buried. Beggars die. And so do rich people. Ignorant people die. And well-educated people die. Famous people die and unknown people die. Young people die and old people die. I have buried people who are younger than some of you young people here tonight. You hear what I'm saying? Death cannot be held off. It comes in an instant of time. The rich man died also, it says, and was buried. The beggar died and the rich man died. And we need to remember that every day, if Jesus Christ doesn't come first to take his church to heaven, as he promised to do before he comes to judge the world in the terrible time of the great tribulation, before his coming to earth to rule, if that doesn't happen, then death is what's waiting. It is appointed unto man once to die. It's an appointment. And you might call your doctor and you might call your dentist and postpone your appointment, but you won't postpone this appointment. No amount of money and no amount of medicine and no amount of excuses will get you out of it. It is appointed to man once to die. And a fool is a person who has no plans beyond that appointment. They spend all their time planning for this life and none planning for the next life. But death is coming at the rate, one man said, of 60 seconds a minute and 60 minutes an hour. That's pretty fast. I have a poem in my Bible that's from an inscription on an old clock in Chester cathedral it says when as a child i laughed and wept time crept when as a youth i dreamed and talked time walked when i became a full-grown man time ran and later as i older grew time flew soon i shall find while traveling on time gone and face eternity begun time done time's running out time ran out for lazarus time ran out for the rich man and the cemeteries are full of people for whom time has run out. And why do you think you're going to be any different? It's that unavoidable appointment. Death is coming. And once death comes, it's too late to change things. In this life is where we make our decisions. In this life is where we make our commitments that affect us for all eternity. And if you really believe that, you refuse to put your head on your pillow tonight until you have that most important decision about your relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, settled about your eternity. Where are you going to spend eternity? That's a long time to live in a place that you don't want to be. So death came. And death for the believer, not because he was a beggar, remember, but for the believer, because Lazarus was a believer. Death for the believer is simply the leaving behind of this world to go to a place of great joy and peace and fellowship. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, to that place where Abraham was. Lazarus and Abraham became friends. He was taken there. When he closed his eyes in this life, the angels were there waiting for him. We used to sing that song. The angels beckon me through heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. 
But people who are not believers don't have any angels waiting for them to take them to heaven. See, it says here, the rich man also died and was buried. That's it. That's it. Well, we say that's it with tongue in cheek. That's what a lot of people would hope would be it. The old men in Spain, they sit around the plazas and talk and, and throw popcorn and bread to the pigeons and criticize the government and anything else they can think of. And we often go stand or sit and talk to them about the Lord. And they generally end up saying, well, I don't believe in any of that. I'm, when I die, they're going to put me in a box. I'm going to rot and that's it. I'm going into a hole, hole in the ground. That's all they say. And they think they're being tough. And really, they're being foolish. Wouldn't it be nice if that's all? If there were no accounting, if there were no facing God, if, if there were no personal responsibility after death, if that was simply the end, period, and no more. But that isn't the way it is. The scripture says, the rich man also died and was buried, it says, and, and when you come to verse 23, that and is a warning to anyone here tonight who doesn't know for sure that they're going to heaven. If you were to die tonight, could you say for sure that you would go to heaven? If you can't say that, watch out for this and. Because he died, he was buried, and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, let's think about this for a minute. His body is in the tomb. It was buried, but he's not there. He's not there. Listen to me tonight. You are not your body. You are not your body. You live in your body. Your body is part of you. But your body does not sum up who you are. It's called in the scriptures our earthly tabernacle. It's our dwelling place. But before your body is ever cold, before the first tear of anyone around you ever hits their cheek, your spirit, the real you, will pass into eternity and will be somewhere forever. Now let's think about the condition of the rich man after death. It says that he was in Hades. He was in Hades. That's a place. We call it sometimes the, um, the antechamber to hell. It's the holding prison where everyone who dies without faith in Jesus Christ is kept until the day of the great white throne, the great judgment of Revelation chapter 20. And it is a place of torment. It's a place of pain. And it's a place where all who are there are conscious that they are there. There's no such thing as soul sleep and nirvana and all of these things that people talk about and hope for. It says he lifted up or he opened up his eyes. He could see where he was. He could see. Not only does it uh, say he could see, but you can take it literally this way. If it says he lifted up his eyes, what does that mean? Well, he was in a place so low. The only place he could look, if he wanted to look, was up. There's nothing else to see. Old Texas brother used to say, Texan brother used to say, he's lower than a snake's belly. (laughs) That's pretty low, isn't it? That's pretty low. But this is lower than that. This is the lowest place that a person can be. The only place you can look is up. But people who have died without faith in Christ are conscious of the place that they are in. And some of us know people tonight who are there. And maybe there's someone in this room tonight who's going to be there. Unless you change. This is the place you're going to be. You'll never meet the rich man, I don't think. It's not a place of fellowship. And the Spaniards are real cute when you talk to them. They say, 
Oh, I'm going to go to hell, porque ahí están todos los músicos. Ahí están los cantantes. Say, I'm going to go to hell because that's where all the musicians are and all the singers. We're going to have a big party down there. And that's what they think. And they laugh about it. In another place in the New Testament, it speaks of the place of eternal torment in this way. The blackness of darkness forever. You're not going to see anyone. You're not going to have a party. You're going to be conscious of a place that you are in. And you'll be conscious of the fact that there are others in a place of blessing that you can't ever go to. You're not going to have anyone to talk to in hell. The lowest place you can go, Hades. It's an awful place to think that some people here tonight might actually end up there after having heard the word of God preached, after having had Christian friends, Christian family, after having had so many opportunities to have to hear the Lord say to them, Depart. Depart, O sinner, to thy woe. To go to a place where never more you see a smile, never more hear a kind voice, and never have any hope of ever getting out and having any relief. In torment, he says, the loneliness and the separation of hell are bad enough. But it says here torment. So, how can a person be tormented? I thought torment had to do only with nerve endings, torture. And that's real popular right now. People talk about prisoner abuse and cruel and unusual punishment. <clears throat> you haven't seen anything yet. There are no human rights in hell. Or maybe we should say that's where people receive what they have coming to them. That's where they get their rights. Because punishment, eternal punishment, is a place for people who have rejected God, who have rejected the gospel, who did not want to be with God. Someone said one time, you don't like the church meeting? It's too long for you? What in the world are you going to do in heaven? You're going to ask the Lord, could we cut this out and go, go to a movie? <laughs> what are you going to do in heaven? You don't like the fellowship of the saints. You don't like to sing the hymns. You don't like to think about the scriptures. You don't like to worship the Lord. The Lord's Supper. Oh, but it's such a quiet meeting and, and there's no, it doesn't have anything to entertain us, sort of. It's just we just sit there and think thoughts about God. What's wrong with that? Except that it's foreign to our nature. No, the Lord's not going to force people to go to heaven because a person who's not a believer would be the most unhappy person in heaven. And they would ruin it for everyone else. He's in hell and he's in torments. Not necessary to have a physical body and to have these nerve endings that we have now to have torment. Have you never been in mental pain? Have you never been in emotional pain? Do you, know that, do you not know that there are kinds of agony and discomfort that don't have anything to do with a sprained ankle or a cut or any other kind of wound or injury or sickness? Torment. In hell. In torment. And as if that weren't enough, he looked up and he said he could see afar off. That's what it says. Far off he could see Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's looking up. Uh, we could say out of the well, out of the pit of hell. He's looking up and he can see. He, but he doesn't see it like a close-up personal interview. He sees it afar off. Like looking through binoculars. Like looking through a telescope. Like looking a long way down a hall or across a football stadium or something where you can just make out who it is. And speak to them by shouting to them. But you can't get to them. That's what it says. He saw them. 
Now, how did he know who Abraham was? You ever think about that? How did he know Abraham? Never saw him before in his life. Hundreds of years between Abraham and him. But when we pass into eternity, there will be that recognition of people. I don't think Abraham was wearing a little name tag that said, Hello, my name is Abraham. (laughs) Now, he knew, well, given that, he knew Lazarus because Lazarus had been close to his gate, to his door. But he didn't know Abraham. And Abraham and Lazarus are together. And Lazarus has been carried there by the angels. He's in a place where he's happy and comfortable and blessed. And when I think about this in verse 24, verse 23 at the end of it, I think about the pain that it will cause people to be conscious of the fact that there is a heaven that they will never see and a God of love that they will never know. For God so loved the world. I had a man quote me that verse one time in the Air Force. I was witnessing to him. We were in a what they call an RSU, a runway supervisory unit. They sent the flight instructors to this like a little short control tower by the runway when the students were flying. And we controlled the runway actually from there, not the tower at the base. And we had to do duty there sometimes 8 to 12 hours. And uh, I would take advantage of it when we had to be out there to witness to these fellows that uh, I had to be out there with. And most of them didn't want to go with me, but they didn't have much choice. So they, were, they were stuck for however amount of time that was. And I would take my verses, I was memorizing Bible verses, and I had them on little cards, smaller than three by five cards, a little bit bigger than a calling card maybe. I had them written out and the reference on the other side, and I would review them. And so what I would do is I'd say, listen, would you help me with this? Just You just look at the, tell me what the text is, you know, like John 3.16, and, and then check it and make sure I'm quoting it right. So I'd hand in my pack of verses. <laughs> and so they would go through this, and then he handed them back. He said, I know what you're trying to do. I said, I'm trying to learn the verses. He said, I think you already know the verses. He said, I know these verses too. He said, I learned verses. I went to vacation Bible school when I was a boy. Listen, he said. And he got all proud. He said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What do you think of that? John 3.16. All proud. Nearly popped a button. I said, boy, that's really good. John was his name. I said, that's really good, John. but, But that's really bad. I really feel sorry for you because you're going to pass all eternity knowing that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You're going to know that God did that so that whoever believes in him should not perish and that you didn't believe in him and you perished. But you didn't perish because God didn't love you. I get so tired of these people that say God chose a few people and predestined them to be saved before the beginning of the world. And the others, he all destined to hell. That sounds like the, the, some of the rabbis in their writings used to say that God made the Gentiles to be fuel for the fires of hell. That, that's what they used to say. It was like God had some meeting with the devil before uh, time began, you know, and said, or at the beginning of the human race, and said, okay, uh, I want this one for me, and you can have it like choosing up teams, you know. I'll take this one, and you can have that one, and, and divide them all up. No, sir. If you don't make it to heaven, it won't be because God didn't love you. It won't be because Christ didn't die for you. It will be because in spite of God's love and tremendous sacrifice, you chose not to believe. And as we said the other night, everyone is free to choose. We don't obligate anyone to do anything here. But we will tell you what the consequences are. You're free to choose and you're free to suffer the consequences of your decision. 
be they good or bad. And that's what happened. What a surprise it's going to be for some people. I think this rich man might have been surprised when he opened up his eyes and he wasn't in heaven. Can you imagine that? He opened up his eyes and he was alone. And and more. We're going to get into that here in a minute. He was in pain. And he looked and a long way off. He could see the place where the people who were blessed and saved forever where He could see it. And he wasn't there. Now, I want to know if there's somebody like that here tonight. You think you're okay. You better be sure, friend. Because if you mess this one up, remember, there's no reverse gear. There's no backing up. There's no getting out of it. It's too late. It's too late forever. In eternity, decisions made in this life are final. Are final. Wouldn't it be an awful thing? Wouldn't it be the worst nightmare you could possibly think of? To pass from this life and to think, well... I guess I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. I, I think I trusted Jesus. I, whatever you might say. And then to open your eyes and to find that you're in a place where you'll never see him. You're separated forever. They were together in time. But they were apart for all eternity. And oh, how wide that distance becomes in eternity, friend. They were so close to one another in life. He was at the gate of that rich man. They passed. They saw one another. They probably spoke. They had eye contact. And now they are worlds apart. They are an eternity apart now. And nothing can be done to change that. And it would be an awful thing for somebody here tonight to be deceived about their spiritual condition. To be excusing the lack of fruit, the lack of reality in their life. And to be using whatever reasoning they want to. To say, I'm okay and I'm not as bad as this one. And I'm not as bad as that one. And all the time to be headed for that awful surprise. When you open your eyes on the other side of death's door. And you find out you're not where you wanted to be. Too late. Mercy over. Too late. Chance is gone. Shut outside the golden gate. Just too late. It would be an awful thing. And that's exactly what happened to this man. And he cried, it says. He cried in verse, in verse 24. He lifted up his voice. He's calling out Father Abraham because he's a long way off. And he's looking up through the tunnel of eternity across that great chasm that separates them. And he's seeing Abraham. And he's calling to him, Father Abraham. He's speaking like a good Hebrew. That's what they said. We have Abraham for our father. They said it. Let's look at it in John 8. How the Lord spoke with him and how they spoke with him. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. He said, You're not Abraham's children. You're Abraham's descendants, but you're not his children. Now, what does that mean? That means you're not like him. You're not of the same caliber as Abraham. You're not of his family. You're some kind of descendant, but you don't have the qualities that Abraham has. You're not like Abraham. You don't really belong to him. But this is what they said. We have Abraham for our father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons, the twelve tribes, the children of Israel... This is our heritage. This is our lineage. And we are not the Gentiles. We have Abraham for our father. And so he spoke. 
this man did. When he looked up into eternity and he saw Abraham up there and he called him what, what every good Hebrew would have said. Father Abraham. It's almost as if he's saying, uh, there's been a mistake made here. He cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But now notice how pathetic this cry. He didn't ask to leave. He didn't ask to leave there at all. He seemed to know intuitively that he couldn't leave. He didn't even ask that. And when he, when he talks about what he saw, it never says he saw anything or anyone around him in Hades. You know that, don't you? The only thing he saw was people up there in paradise. He didn't see anyone around him. He was alone where he was. And he says, send Lazarus. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. He's in hell. He's in torment. He's conscious of a paradise and a place of blessing that he will never be in. And it says he's in flames. I am tormented in this flame. Now, that's the second time of four times in this passage that he's used the word torment. I am tormented in this flame. And people say, well, but that's only for a little while because there's annihilation, you know, and flame burns things up. And so then it's going to be burned up and consumed eventually, and then it won't be there anymore. Well, this is what happens when we use logic, human logic, human reasoning that's untaught by the Holy Spirit. If you're taught by the Spirit of God, if you let yourself be taught by the Scriptures, you know, let's go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at a different kind of fire, the kind of fire that God makes. And he doesn't make it by rubbing two sticks together or pouring a little gasoline on some barbecue coals, some charcoal. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked. And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Well, you see, this is holy fire. This is divine fire. This is not fire made by rubbing sticks together. This is fire that God makes. It's real fire. Did Moses see the fire or did he just thought? Did he just think he saw fire? He saw it. He said, the bush is burning. And he stopped and he looked at it. And he drew close to it to see what it was. And he'd say, ah, that's just a, that's just a hologram. Oh, that's just a, an illusion. I've been in the desert too long. It was fire. It was a bush that was burning with fire. And it says it was not consumed. See, fire here on earth works on the principle of combustion. Nobody here better than Mike. He could come up here. You want to come up here and finish this, Mike? But God's fire doesn't have to do that. It was burning in the bush, but the bush wasn't being consumed. Divine fire burns and doesn't consume. There's no annihilation. People are not evaporated. They're not burned up and disappear. They're not incinerated. They burn just like that bush. As long as that fire had stayed in that bush, if it was still there burning today, if the fire was still there, the bush would still be there. And he said, I am tormented in this flame. It was hot. He said, cool my tongue. It was dry. He said, dip the tip of his finger in water for my tongue. He was thirsty. I thirst. I'm hot. I'm tormented. He's calling out not to leave because he knows he's hopeless. He can't leave. He has no hope of ever leaving there. He says, at least send him. 
to give me some relief. Hell is a lonely place. The tip of your finger once in all eternity. How's that for an aspiration? That once in all of eternity, a moistened fingertip might cross your tongue. That was the most he could bring himself to hope for. That's pretty bad. That's pretty low. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is the place of death. Not death in the mortuary and death in the graveyard, but the death that comes after death, which is the second death. There was an old man named William Pell who, I'm told, rode the bus in Grand Rapids back in his day. He was a gospel preacher. Rode the bus. And uh, one morning he was riding the bus through Grand Rapids and there was a woman on the bus. The bus was full of people. He was standing. Everybody was standing, bumping into each other. And uh, as the bus went along, and there was a woman standing in the bus smoking. And one of the men said, Woman, you're going to kill yourself and all of us with that smoke, with that cigarette. And the woman said, Ah, you can only die once. And she ignored him. And our friend, Mr. Pell, is riding along and his hand is holding the post on the bus. And with his other hand, he reaches into his coat pocket and he pulls out the New Testament. And he says, and he had a deep, booming voice. And they could hear him all over the bus. He said, I have a book in my hand that says that you can die twice. He turned over with his thumb like this to Revelation chapter 20. And he began to read about the second death. Silence fell over the bus. Nobody said anything. So pretty soon, uh, our friend says, but in this book, it says you can live twice. You can be born twice and have a second life. And he turns over with his thumb, and he begins to read about the new birth. So here he is, riding along on this bus, preaching a gospel message, all because someone said, you're going to kill yourself and us with the smoke, with the cigarette. But it's true. You can die twice. There is a second death. And the death of which the Bible speaks of as the penalty of sin, that death is not uh, simply falling over dead from a heart attack or dying of cancer or whatever and and ending up in a mortuary somewhere. That's only the down payment, friend. That's only the down payment. That's the first step. That's the initial phase. That's what introduces you into eternal death, the second death, the lake of fire, which is forever. That's what it's called in Revelation chapter 20. This is The second death. No doctor can help you there. There's no one who can do anything for a person who goes there. It is forever. The second death. The wages of sin is death. And when the Bible says that, that's what it means. That this is where people go who die with their sins unforgiven. This is where people go who don't have a Savior. And that's exactly why God sent Jesus Christ into the world. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not go to that place of second death. Remember what we said the other night? What does it mean to perish? To pass eternally ruined into Satan's habitation. Hell is a place that was made for the punishment of Satan and his rebellious angels. And everyone who trusts And follows his ways. Everyone who does not trust in God. But who likewise rebels against him. Will go to that place. It is a place of eternal ruin. It is the wages of sin. The second death. And this man says I am tormented. And Abraham agrees with him. In verse 25 at the end. He says thou art tormented. It's not an illusion. 
you feel it and you see it and I'm looking at it from afar and I can tell you it's true. You are tormented, he said. He's afflicted and not just by the flame. Look at verse 25. Abraham said, son, remember, remember. I think it's one of the most agonizing things about eternal punishment. Besides the flames and the loneliness, the torment, the thirst. I think one of the worst things is the torment, the torture, the pain of a memory. Has anybody here ever lost sleep? Couldn't sleep because you were thinking about something? Anybody here ever been driven to tears by thoughts? Well, I was a little boy. I used to cry if I skinned my knee. I don't cry when I skin my knee now. I'm a big boy. (laughs) But there are other things that make us cry. And we could wish that they were only a skint knee, couldn't we? Couldn't we? But they aren't. They're much worse. Son, he says, remember. You had your chance. This is what he's saying. Thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. With all the things that God gave you, all the blessings that you received from him, you never turned your heart to him in faith. You never trusted him. You never followed him. And I think one of the worst things about a place like this is to have to be there forever tortured by memory. Memory of chances lost. And maybe people will remember conversations they had. Maybe people will remember a scene. It's like a bad movie that keeps uh, playing over and over in, in your mind and you can't turn it off. There's no controls for the set. and It just keeps playing over and over again. Where someone talked to you about the Lord. Where someone gave you a gospel tract to read. Where someone gave you a Bible and said, would you read this? Or you remembered every time you got up in the morning, you saw your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister. Or you saw your friend sitting there reading the Bible. And you never dared to do it. You already had your mind made up. You didn't want to be confused by the facts. And so you didn't read it. You didn't take the track. And forever you'll hear yourself saying these things over and over again. I had a young man who was a student pilot uh, under my care in the Air Force who killed himself in an, in an awful accident when he was flying solo. Uh, he was with us and we flew the subsonic jets and then they moved to other instructors in the supersonic jets, and when he moved into those, he killed himself one day. I witnessed him over and over again. He used to have to sit at my desk every day, and under my desktop, the glass top on the desk, I had all kinds of verses and uh, little bumper stickers and sayings and things, and I used to talk to them. I took full advantage of the opportunities that I had, and he used to say this to me. He'd listen to me for a minute, and he'd say, eh, He said, I leave religion to my wife. How would you like to say that for all eternity? And you can't stop yourself from saying it. I leave religion to my wife. I leave religion to my wife. I leave religion to my wife. Just over and over and over again. And seeing all those things that you saw that you were rejecting. I'm not as bad as some people. 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 Just think of all the crazy things people will say and remember how awful it will be. To be in a place like that. Memory of sins. A conscience afflicted with guilt that can never be relieved. Never. Shame and remorse. The kind of things that people feel when they feel so hopeless. They say, I'm going to end it all. 
You can't end it all, friend. You're in a place where there's no end to it all. There's no way out. I am in torment, he says. And Abraham says, you are tormented. You are tormented. But no one's coming to you where you are. You're tormented. Remember, that's all you can do. Remember. And he begins to remember. And he remembers and he remembers. And then he thinks down in verse 27. He says, I pray thee therefore, O Father, send, send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren. Ah, he knows people who die and who go to eternal punishment. They remember their family. They know they had brothers and sisters. They have an identity. This is not uh, Buddhism. This is not New Age. This is not Nirvana being absorbed into the sea of eternity. This is conscious, personal identity and memory forever, forever. My brothers, he knew how many brothers he had. He knew his father's house. And he knew he couldn't get back to them. And he said, send someone. Send him. He's thinking. He's remembering. And maybe someone here tonight is going to have to remember. I hope not. Those evenings, that evening when you had to sit and listen to this fellow tell you about the rich man and Lazarus and warn you that you were going to have that memory. You don't know this might be your last night. This might be your last opportunity. Remember, he says, in forever. There is a great gulf fixed between us and you. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us who would come from there. It's a place of fixed destiny. And Lazarus is talking, or the rich man is talking to Abraham, and Abraham is answering him. He's saying, no, but you see this gulf. You can't come here, and we can't go there. This is not purgatory. There is no purgatory in the Bible. Purgatory is an invention of people who use it to keep people um, tied, enslaved, and they make money off of it. And they can't ever tell you how much it costs or when that person will be out. I've seen them. Little old women, bent over with age, dressed in black, obviously poor, and here they come into the cathedral, and they will go up to that box in front of that crucifix, And the box says on it to get souls out of purgatory in Spanish. And here they are opening up their little purse and taking out coins. How are they living? Their husband's dead. They're living on his pension. They don't have enough money. And they went and spent some of that money and they bought some flowers and they put them in. And and they went and spent some of that money and they bought some candles and they lit the candles. And they went and spent some of that money dropping it in the boxes. And they're praying. And I was watching one day this and I said... If the priest comes by right now, there were none in sight. I said, if the priest comes right now, I'm going to collar him and walk him over to that woman and say, tell this woman how much she still owes. When is this going to be over? And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. It's a good thing he didn't come because I think I was in a frame of mind where I might have done it. (laughs) Tell her. When will they be out? They don't know. This is the way they do the abracadabra, you see. Whenever they don't know anything, they put their hands together and they say, Oh, that's a mystery. That's a mystery, my son. Or they say, Oh, that's for God to know. We mustn't delve into these things. 
Check your mind at the door. Don't think. You might get into trouble. That's a mystery. We don't know when they'll be out. We don't know how long it takes. And that's why every year on the anniversary of their death, we have to say a mass. And, of course, it costs something to do that. So you pay the priest, and he says the mass. And if you pay the priest more, he says a bigger mass or a bigger mess. But no one gets out. And I wonder if there are people in this place of punishment who think they're in purgatory. I wonder if they think they're there. I wonder if they think one day they're going to get out. Maybe they think that when they first open their eyes, would they soon find out, as this man did, that they are there forever. It's a great gulf fix. You cannot leave. You will never get out. You are here forever. Those are the words. And I say it with passion because I feel for the people who are deceived by these doctrines. But I say it with compassion. I feel so much for these people. It really disturbs me. And I got down on my knees in my room this afternoon and I was reading this passage and praying about it. And I just, I wanted to pray. And I just couldn't. I couldn't find words for the longest time. I just couldn't find anything to say. I I couldn't express what I felt as I thought about this man who's there forever suffering. And I thought, I know people who are in that place tonight. That man, this man that we're reading about in Luke 16, that was written in Jesus' day. That man is still there tonight. He's still there. He's still in torment. He has no relief. And there are so many others who are there, and some of them people that I know. And other people that I know that I fear are soon to be there if they don't wake up. And sometimes we we need to think about this, those of us who are Christians, and we need to have more of the attitude of that man who stopped his car by a place where the bridge was washed out at night, and he got out a flashlight, and he went out on the road, and he started stopping people. The bridge is out! The bridge is out! Trying to stop people before they drove off into eternity. How can we sit back, those of us who know the Lord, how can we calmly sit back and say, well, it's up to each one to decide, and we see them go hurtling by, and we know the bridge is out, and we don't say anything to them. I warned them. I can at least warn them. They don't want to turn around. They think they can jump the gap, whatever they want to try. But it's not going to be on me for not warning them. See, not going to be on me for that. And it is to our shame that people in hell have more concern for lost souls than we do sometimes. Send him to my father's house, he says. If he can't come help me, send him to my father's house. Can he go there? I have five brothers, he says. If they, if one went to them from the dead, they would repent. Ah, but they're Jews. They're Hebrews. He's a Hebrew. Why would a Hebrew need to repent? Why would God's chosen people need to repent? And I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way. They were God's chosen people. Why would they need to repent? Because they didn't believe. They would need to repent of their unbelief. They would need to repent of their sin. They need to come to personal faith in him. And he knew it. In hell, he knew it. I hear people say today, Oh, repentance. Well, that was just a doctrine for people. That was what they said to the Jews back in the time of Christ. Listen, everyone in hell knows that everyone on earth needs to repent. Everyone. They will repent, he says. He was concerned about them. He was praying. He prayed in hell. I pray thee, Father Abraham. Send him to my father's house. He's praying. 
He's praying to the wrong person. He's praying from the wrong place. No prayer is going to be answered in hell. People who are there are conscious that they are there. They know what the score is. But they can't do anything about it. It's too late. It is a place where there is no mercy. It is a place where there is no relief. It is a suffering that has no end. There's never a break. There's never a pause. There's never a hope. After a thousand years, after a thousand million years, there's never any hope of leaving. Come, O my soul, thy certain ruin trace, if thou neglect the Savior's proffered grace. Infinite years in torment thou must spend, which never, never, never have an end. Yes, thou shalt dwell in torment and despair, as many years as atoms in the air. When these are spent, as many thousands more as grains of sand upon the ebbing shore. When these have fled, as many yet behind, as forest leaves when shaken by the wind. When these are gone, as many to ensue as blades of grass or drops of morning dew. When all these doleful years are spent in pain and multiplied by myriad times again, that could afford some ease. Could I suppose that then thy dreadful years were at a close? But I tremble and I shiver at that awful word forever. Heaven is forever. And so is hell. Eternal blessing is forever. And eternal punishment is exactly the same. The Lord used the same word to refer to eternal life that he used to refer to eternal punishment. And that's exactly what it means. Two men together in time and apart for eternity. No chance to come out. No relief. No one can pray for you to get you out of there. No one can pay anything to get you out. You're there forever. And what's the attitude of the rich man? Well... We see him here suffering, and we see him asking, send Lazarus. In verse 24, he says, send him to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He he has this um, vice, doesn't he, of being served. He was served all his life, and even in eternity, he's still calling for people to come and serve him. Can't get away from it. He says, have mercy on me. Sorry, it's too late for that. We have some friends in in, um, Israel and we lived next door to them, and they had a little boy who sometimes was misbehaved like little boys do, and uh, like little girls do too, but this was a boy, and he, his mother would pick him up. She would tell him to do something. He wouldn't do it, and she'd give him an opportunity, and he wouldn't take it, and then she would pick him up. He was about three. He would pick him up and start walking off into the other part of the house to correct him, and he knew what was coming, and he'd be kicking his feet behind her. He say, "Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom." As they walked off down the hall, and the only thing that you hear from her would be, "It's a bit late for that." And that's an illustration of Luke 16. You come to a place where it's too late to be sorry, where you will be sorry, but it's too late to do anything about it. It's a bit late for that. The Bible says, "Now is the time, the accepted time. It's now." When you can breathe now, when you have life, 
Now when you can make a choice, now when you have heard the warning, now when you know that there are only two places you can go in eternity. He said, have mercy on me. Couldn't do that. Sorry, it's too late for that. He's concerned about his family. Then he, he gives up on himself. And he's pleading for those who are in his household. He wants them to believe. He wants them to repent. He wants somebody to send someone to warn them. What do you think we're doing here tonight? This is probably the concept that uh, motivated Dickens in his story, The Christmas Carol, to write about Marley's ghost. You know the story, The Christmas Carol? Here in came Marley's ghost with all wrapped in all of these chains, each one of them forged by his sins and this life. And he came in on Christmas Eve and he stood before Scrooge's dead to warn him. And that's where he was heading. Ebenezer Scrooge. And he warned him. And he wailed and moaned and he carried his chains about and he passed off into the night. It's a warning. He says, send someone to my, to my father's house. Send someone to my brothers. Send someone to warn them. Wouldn't it be nice if God would do that? And do you know that that is exactly what he's doing tonight? He sent someone in life to warn you. When you can think, when you can make decisions, when you're in your right mind, when you have time, he sent someone to warn you. He has hope that they'll repent. But you notice he doesn't have any hope for himself. He's given up on himself. Because hell, eternal punishment is a place of hopelessness. As far as I'm concerned, it's as if he said, it's too late for me. But my brothers, my brother, they haven't died yet. He knew they were still alive. He knew they were in his father's house. He said, send someone to my brothers. He couldn't go. The ghosts or the spirits of people do not come back and communicate with them. You can forget that. That's a bunch of baloney. They don't do that. He couldn't go. Send him, he said. Nope. They have... Moses and the prophets. Now, what do you mean to have Moses and the prophets? Moses has long since been dead and so had the prophets. What do you mean by that? He's referring to the Old Testament. The writings of Moses and the prophets. What they called the Bible. In those days, the scriptures that they had, they called them Moses and the prophets. He said he has that. Let him read that. Let them read that. No, no, he's arguing. No, no, Father Ian, but if someone went back from the dead, they would be persuaded. People say that in Spain. They say, Nadia ha muerto y vuelto. Nadia ha muerto y vuelto. No one has died and come back from the dead. How do we know what's on the other side? These are just stories people tell us to scare us. Nadia sabe. Que nadia ha muerto y vuelto. That's the way they talk. I say, oh, I know people who have died and come back. We heard a song about one of them tonight, didn't we? And what about Jesus? And this is him talking here. If anyone knows what's in eternity, he does. Remember, friends. This is not a philosophy class. This is not somebody's interpretation of something. These are the words of Christ who moved aside the curtain and let us look into eternity and see what happened to people, to two people who were together in time but who were apart for all eternity. And you tonight are here with us. But where are you going to be tomorrow? Where are you going to be? When death comes knocking at your door, where are you going to be? Are you going to be separated for all eternity? Or are you going to be in that place of blessing? That place where those people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have believed, who have faith, who have deposited themselves like that into God's care. All of their faith and trust and hope is in Him. If He fails them, they're lost. 
He doesn't fail anyone. The Lord Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Here is a man who will never be blessed. And then there are people who will never perish. And those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and I, we're the people who will never perish. We don't deserve it. We don't, if we got what we deserve, we'd be right there with him. And I'd be the first one. But like that Pharisee and that publican the other night, there's a time in our lives where we came to the Lord Jesus and we said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. It's me, Lord. See? And so there's a place of eternal blessing and there's a place of eternal torment and there's no other place. That's it. There's no other destiny. And everyone here tonight needs to think about that. Where are you going to be? Look at Abraham's reply to him. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I like that. Abraham didn't say, now he's already in glory in heaven. He didn't say, you know, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. Wait just a minute. Um, Gabriel, get me an appointment with the Lord. Listen, Lord, a man in hell has just come up with a good idea. If we said, look, what do you think of this? Now, here's an idea. We sent someone from here to go and talk to them. And the Lord says, you know, I never thought of that. (laughs) You know, they're right. We should listen more to people. We should make heaven uh, a friendly or more user-friendly community. We should find out what people would like to have in a heaven and then make it that way to give it to them. Is that what God does? He's already given us everything we need. It's in his word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's no way around that. In heaven, they know how much you need to read the Bible. Got that? In heaven, Abraham and the saints in heaven. In heaven, they know how much you need to read the Bible. And they're hoping you will. They know that if you read the Bible and if you believe the message of the Bible, they know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They know that in the Bible you're going to find out who you are, that you are a sinner, that you have a wicked heart and you have a wicked nature and that you can't be good and you can't improve yourself. They know you're going to find that out. Like we said the other night, you're going to get a good down bringing. And they know that if you keep reading that same Bible, you're going to find out that God proposes the perfect solution. He sent his son To die for you on the cross. Now what does that mean? We asked a woman that one time. She said, I believe Jesus died for me on the cross. He said, what does that mean? She said, well, he died for our sins. I said, "Mm -hmm. what does that mean? She said, I don't know what that means. It's what they told me in church. Isn't that good enough? No, it's not good enough. Remember the parrot? It's not about learning to say the right words. It's about knowing what they mean. What does it mean? He died for my sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He suffered for sins, but he didn't do any sins. So his suffering was not so much the suffering that we focus on and think about, and it so often is represented. The physical suffering is a part of it, but it's not, that's not the essence of it. The suffering is, as it says in the book of the prophet Zechariah, Awake, O sword, against my fellow, 
against my servant, against, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. And it calls for him to be smitten. That's what happened at Calvary. God punished sin. The Roman soldiers and the Jews did not punish Jesus for your sins and mine. They're sinners just like you and me. They couldn't punish Jesus for our sins. What they did was awful. And it was real and it forms a part of his suffering for us. But they couldn't punish him for our sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There was a spiritual, invisible to the human eyes transaction taking place there at Calvary. God placed the sins of all humanity for 1 Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree on the cross. All our sins were on him. And when you look at all the religious art and you look at all the representations of the death of Christ, you'll never see any sins on him because you can't see them. They're not warts, but they're there. And I think if I could see them, I would probably just shrivel up and die. If I had to look at all my sins, I don't know all my sins. Do you know all your sins? What did David say in Psalm 19? Deliver me from secret sins. He meant sins that I don't even know about. Look, I don't have to know all of my sins in order to be forgiven from. I don't have to be regressed, take therapy and regress back and find and heal all of those memories and things and untie the knots and tie up the loose ends and all of that stuff people try to do. God knows about the things that are hidden to us, the things that are unknown to us. And when he gives the, forgives a person, he does it all the way. He doesn't require me to know them all. I confess the sins I know. I feel shame for the sins I know. But if I had to know all my sins, if I could see all my sins on my Savior there on the cross of Calvary, I think I would just shrivel up. It would be an awful sight. Who put Jesus on the cross? I did. I did. It was my fault he died there. I'm the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. It was my sins and he had them on him, on his person there. And God from heaven punished him for our sins with eternal punishment. An infinite being dying on the cross of Calvary died an infinite death. And his death is of infinite value. And all of that could take place in a finite period of time because he is infinite. It happened. He died. And he rose again. And he's waiting in heaven to receive everyone who believes in him. What happened to Stephen when he died? He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw the Lord Jesus standing up to receive. He saw the Lord Jesus there at the right hand of God. He saw where he was going. He knew that he wasn't headed to a grave. His body was. But before that body ever got out what they call Stephen's Gate in the city of Jerusalem, before it ever found the cemetery, Stephen was in heaven rejoicing with Abraham and Lazarus and everyone else that one day all of us who know the Lord as our Savior are going to see. And anything you don't understand about Lazarus or Abraham, you just hang on to it. You'll, you'll get a chance to ask him. But don't put your questions, your theological questions, in front of your faith. Don't put your theological cart in front of the horse or you're going to be in trouble. First of all, trust the Lord. Amen. Trust him with your soul. Trust him like we said. Put all your weight on him. Believe in him to save you. 
Say, Lord, when you died on the cross at Calvary, my sins were on you and you did that for me. That was for me, Lord. I believe you. I trust you. This is the way to get to heaven. Christ hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And everyone who gets to heaven is taken there by Christ, not by Mary and not by the saints and not by the sacraments and not by the good works and not by being sincere and not by keeping the golden rule. Everyone who gets there gets there on the back of Jesus that he might bring us to God. That's the only way we can get That's why he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way. Peter said it in Acts when he preached. He said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. No other name. All roads do not lead to heaven. All those roads lead to hell. Only Christ leads to heaven. So we have two men here separated now by eternity. And we have people sitting in this room tonight that may soon be separated by eternity. And we have people in the world out there around us, people that we know, friends, family, associates, who are headed for that unavoidable appointment when that final and irrevocable decision will be made. Actually has been made. The Lord Jesus is calling tonight. He's here with us. It's not me. I'm just the Western Union boy. I I didn't write this. I didn't invent this story to scare people. And Jesus doesn't just say things to scare people. I'll tell you this. You're a fool if you're not afraid of the place he described in Luke 16. And you're going to be an eternal loser if you don't pay attention to that. And we are no better than you. Those of us who have believed, we already know this. we already been down there and we stay down. We're down in the place of humble people who have been forgiven. We're so grateful to have been warned and to have trusted the Lord in time. And the only thing we're saying to you is, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We found the answer. And it's not in religion, and it's not in philosophy, and it's not in works and effort and sincerity. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. God is calling you tonight. Believe his word, he says. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God says, pay attention to this book. You want to have eternal life? Pay attention to the gospel message of this book. Don't open your eyes in de- the other side of death's door and find the awful surprise that you're not where you thought you were going to be. We beg you. We plead you with you tonight to take advantage of this opportunity. Death is coming. Life is short and death is sure. It's coming. You're with us now in time. Let me ask you, are you going to be with us in eternity? Let's pray. Yes, Lord. We thank you for the warning. We thank you for the word of God that tells us that ahead in the road, the bridge is out. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about these things. And we're sorry for people like this rich man and so many others. We're sorry about them. And I know that if it weren't for the grace of God, that would be me. And we pray tonight, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us of how close eternity is, a breath away, a heartbeat away, that no one might leave here tonight without knowing what plans they have for the moment after death. We thank you that there is a heaven. We thank you that there is a place of eternal blessing and joy and fellowship, happiness, rest, place where there is no sin or sickness or sadness. We thank you for that. And we thank you for telling us how to get there. We thank you for your son who is the way for salvation in him. And we do pray that tonight will be a night of salvation for those who don't know him. 
And they will be able to say, Lord, it's me. I'm the sinner you died for. Forgive my sins and take me to be with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.